Welcome to Archery Country Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another awesome episode of Archery Country Podcast, where we are rocking and rolling with uh, something that is very dear to all of our hearts on this panel. We're going to dig into some food plots from early season, mid-season, late season, and we have a really, really cool guest with us from Real World Wildlife Products out of Central Illinois. It is Mr. Don Higgins. How you doing, Don? I'm great. How you guys? We're doing awesome. Doing good. We're glad to have you on. So uh, we actually just we put your products in our shops here this year and uh, been overwhelming with the sales. There's uh, actually a lot of people that already know about your products, and we're glad to have them in here. And we're going to be pushing a little bit on uh, certain certain products that are going to work for us in this area and especially down in your area. And we'll talk about Southern food plots and Western plots, Eastern yada, yada, yada. But, uh, Don, let's, uh, if you wouldn't mind, give us a little background on you and, uh, give us a little bit about your products and your company, if you wouldn't mind. Well, I started, uh, hunting as a kid, actually shot my first deer when I was 16 years old, uh, which was 40 years ago. So, I've been uh, chasing deer for quite a while. Um, several years ago, I was part of a video group called Real World Whitetails. And uh, there was five of us in the group. Uh, we filmed our hunts, but it was kind of a unique uh, group that or our videos were unique in that we also allowed people to submit footage and uh, of their hunts. And, and we would produce a video every year, which we sold. Um, but we had sponsors for that, uh, that team and we would give a prize package away to the top submitted video every year. And, you know, the, the person that, that won that prize package, we'd show up at their house unannounced, kind of like publisher's clearinghouse. And we'd hand them a new Matthews bow and lone wolf tree stand, vortex optics, and right on down the line. And, uh, the five of us in that group, three of us owned hunting property. And so we planted food plots and such. And we had a food plot sponsor actually at that time. Um, and one day we got the idea, you know, that uh, there was starting to be some new food plot seed companies pop up. This is when the industry was, was still pretty new. And there was probably, I don't know, four or five at the time. But anyway, our group reached out to every food plot seed company that was in business at that time. And we wanted to, to put their products all side by side by side on our three different properties and video over it and, uh, you know, just see which one was the best, let the deer show us which ones they preferred. And something really interesting happened. Every company that we contacted was willing to send us free seed to put in our plots, but none of them would send us free seed if we was going to plant it next to the competitor. Really? And, we were kind of blown away that the response was the same from every single company. Um, we were kind of scratching our heads. It's like, you know, why won't they put, don't they believe in their products enough, you know, to put it next to the competition? Uh, so we started really digging into it. A couple of us uh, had a little bit of ag background. Um, so we started looking at the seed bags and, and looking at their products really close. And what we found was at that time, 
basically everybody that was selling food plot seed at that time was using a, a various marketing gimmicks, if you will, to uh, increase their profit margins. They were using uh, seed with poor germination, which is usually old seed um, that they're looking to get rid of. Uh, they was using cheap filler seeds in the blend, um, a lot of inert matter. Uh, some of them had up to 50% inert matter in the bag, so you know half the bag wasn't even seed. And uh, a light bulb kind of went off, and I seen the opportunity, and I thought, you know what? If, if these guys are afraid of the competition, we need to start a seed company that is the competition and uh, that's not afraid, you know, base it on uh, – we based our marketing on education. You know, one of the very first things that we did with Real World is uh, taught people how to read a seed tag. Now I got just a little bit ahead of myself because before we started the company, we were we started testing various seeds on our farms and did that for three or four years. Um, we finally got to where we thought we was ready to bring products to market, and we approached a local uh, ag seed company. And uh, they were on board with working with us. They had the, the equipment to package, you know, large volumes of seed. Also, all the uh, permits and such that needed to ship seed across state lines. So, uh, you know, we started uh, Real World Wildlife Seed, we called it at the time, um, with this partner ag company that's a local small business. And, uh, it just grew from there. The first seven or eight years, we doubled in sales each year. And then uh, we just started our 12th year, 2000, or 2020 is our 12th year in business. And we have grown every single year. Um, at the end of May, I looked at our numbers, and our, we are up, our sales are up 63% from last year. Uh, part of that's due to we, we just introduced Giant Miscanthus as a new product in the and part of that growth is, is due to that new product. But uh, everything that every product we've got, sales are up for this year again. Uh, so for the 12th year in a row. So uh, using education as a marketing tool was something new for the hunting or the food plot seed industry. Now, some other companies have, have followed suit and are doing the same today. But when we started 12 years ago, we were the first company uh, – to challenge people to plant our products side by side with anything else on the market and uh, teaching them to read a seed tag, you know, things like that. And that's, that's a very impressive resume. Um, intrigued with how many years, you, you know, product and development and research before you released. And that's something like one of the very first things that popped in that I, I caught wind of, or I looked at as is on the front page of your website, uh, and correct me on how to say it, but dare to compare. Uh, right. You guys are very open about it. You know, it kind of <clears throat> what you relived or what you, you went through with other seed companies, uh, you encourage it, you know, if, if people want to, is plant your seed next to others, correct? Yeah. I mean, that's where we got the whole dare to compare idea was from the other companies refusing to compare. And, uh, you know, we are all, Everyone affiliated with Real World is a deer hunter and land manager first and foremost. We want the very best plots on our own farms, and if there's something better out there, we want to we want to be planting it. Right. So we are continuing our testing continues to this day, and it has never stopped. Um, you know, I think last fall 
I had planted seven different new plant species on my property just in test plots. And these came, these were all suggestions from customers. We've, we've got a pretty good customer base now. Uh, we've got about 200 dealers across the country and then uh, a lot of online orders as well. So we got a really good customer base. And, uh, we've got to know some of these people from their, their calls to order every year and emails and such. And, and they'll suggest things to us like, hey, you ought to try this. And uh, I've had good luck with it. And, and, and so we do. And most of the time, they do not pan out. Um, like I said, I planted seven different new plant species on my farm last fall. Five of them were just worthless. Two of them show some promise that, that we're going to further test. Um, but before anything goes in a package that, that carries the real-world brand on it, it, it goes through extensive testing. We start on our own farms. And if it does good there, then we got an extensive uh uh, pro staff across the country and we'll ship out seed to them and uh, we want to see how it performs not just in central Illinois where we're located but across the country we've got one guy for example he's in North Dakota about 20 miles from the Canadian border so we ship him some seed you know to test uh, to see uh, for cold tolerance and things like that but and we've got them down as far south as Georgia um, just all over the country so before anything ever wears the, the real-world brand, any product wears the real-world brand, it, it gets tested extensively over a wide geographic area. How does uh, soil differences matter? You know, because, I mean, you go around this area and we got, you know, like central Minnesota, we got good black dirt for agriculture, and you go an hour north and you start getting into pretty sandy ground um, with a lot of mm-hmm. pines and stuff around. How does that affect seed and how does that affect how you guys test? Well, what we do is uh, anybody that's going to test for us, you know, we want them to get their soil samples taken and uh, get their fertility right. Um, We get so many questions at Real World about, you know, what fertilizer should I use for this product? Well, there's nobody on earth can answer that question. You need a soil test. And you can't look at the soil and say, well, this is clay or this is sandy or whatever. And, and still have any idea about fertility. I mean, you can take some guesses, but um, you, you got to start by getting the pH right. <clears throat> if the pH is not right, then uh, your fertilizer, your, your nutrients, uh, nitrogen and such could be there, but it's just not available to the plant because the pH is, is wrong. So, you know, no matter what kind of soil you got, you need to start with a, uh, with a soil test to get, to get the, uh, your pH and your nutrients in, in the right levels. And I'm glad you brought that up because where we were going to start with this, um, and that's an awesome history of the company and what you're doing, but so you're, I wouldn't say your advanced food plot listener right now, but just your average or brand new, uh, let's just say they inherited or they purchased their brand new property. And, uh, you know, the dream is to have a, a plethora of clovers and, and other seeds put in there. What is the very, you just said going and getting your pH test. Take us through that. And also Kyle and Jason and Jake, you guys chime in here a little bit. So I drive into my property or I took Onyx maps and I'm looking at it, a topographical look, and I figure out how big my plot's going to be. Rather it be a micro kill plot or a very large um, row crop look at things. 
what's the first step? Are you going out and are you, you know, burning everything off or tilling it up or round up or, or whatever you're going to do to kill off the existing uh, foliage and that? And then where do you, you're, you're taking your pH. Take us through that whole little segment before you ever turn the ground or plant a seed. Well, to, to take a soil test, you know, uh, basically you want to dig down. You, you want to do it before you work the soil, and you want to dig down about four inches and uh, take a soil sample from there. And you want to do it in, in several locations within your plot. You just don't want to go out in the middle of the plot, dig down four inches and scrape some dirt in a bag, and there you go. Instead, you know, on a one-acre plot, I'd suggest you get uh, samples from about four different spots within that acre. And, uh, you know, dig down four inches, take a uh, chunk of dirt about the size of, say, a golf ball, put it in a Ziploc bag, and then you go to the next spot and do the same thing, put it in the same bag. And when you get it all in there, you know, kind of break it up and stir it up. And, and then uh, there's, there's a lot of online uh, outfits that'll, that'll test your soil. Um, I, I prefer taking them to a local um, ag place or ag lab that tests the, that, that does soil tests because you can tell them what you intend to plant in that plot. And then they will not only test your soil, but they'll make uh, fertilizer recommendations. Um, for instance, they'll tell you what your pH is, and then they'll tell you how many pounds of lime you need to add to your, your soil, um, to get it up and, and on down the, the line, you know, nitrogen, potash and, and such. Um, so that, that's the big advantage of using a local, you know, ag, ag lab is that they're going to tell you exactly what you need to put uh, on your soil based on the crop that you intend to plant. And how do you vary, you know, like I have one food plot that's, you know, almost nine acres. Um, mm-hmm. Do you vary you, uh, a larger soil sample or multiple soil samples from different parts of the field or you run it all in, into one? Well, it depends on the, if the soil varies too much, like uh, you may have, uh, say, a, a sandy loam soil, but there may be a, a clay knob out there or something within the field. Um, and, and in that case, you want to take multiple samples. Um, typically, most food plotters are, are planting smaller plots, and, you know, one soil sample per plot is, is adequate yeah that's kind of what i had with mine this year the back my back food plot is i needed to add a lot of um uh, lime to it because it was really like loamy swampy type ground really acidic and then my front one was already an alfalfa field and it was pretty a lot lot better soil so i didn't even really have to do anything with that so it definitely varies like you were saying Mm mm-hmm and correct me if I'm wrong. Um, we're gonna let's get a little technical on this. So, if okay, you, you grab a soil sample or soil samples, an acre, just for to put in spec for people. I don't know the exact dimensions, but can you safely say a football field size equivalent? Um, yeah, yeah, that's close. So you know, if you like, Jake just said nine acres, and I know Kyle, you have some really big plots, and then there's some smaller plots that you know, if you go half an acre. But you're still taking them soil samples. You, you take it to your co-op or ag dealer, or if you choose to go online and send it in, 
you're looking at about a week to two weeks, uh, depending on how busy everybody is to get those back. But they're giving you the pH of your soil, right? And we're let's just say seven is kind of a target number. And, and, and by all means, step in here and tell me if I'm saying anything wrong. But if you're below seven, you're acidic or alkali. And, okay, and if you're above seven, you're acidic. So that's what the lime or, and, and again, you can look all of this up. But you, that's why we're going to somebody who deals with this is to help you out to get your soil, the pH neutral around that seven. And that's where you're going to have seed proficiency and you're going to see the most of, of a bag or five bags or whatever it is. Am I right? Right. The closer you can get to seven, the better. Seven's considered neutral. And uh, if you're over 6.0, then, you know, you're going to grow a pretty good crop. But the closer you get to seven, the better it's going to be. So we have the uh, we have the seed bed, or we have the pH level now. Uh, you kind of distinctively put where your plot's going to be. What's the next step, any of you guys? For me, it kind of depended on a lot of, usually previous to this year, I plowed and dissed pretty much everything. This year, I pretty much round up everything and then just either over like hand seeded over the top of it or else drilled it in okay so i didn't end up disking or plowing as much as i usually did part of that was because my new my new property at my house when the river floods it ends up eroding a lot if i plow or disc gotcha so i kind of learned my lesson that way the hard way so now i'm trying to go the other way and jake you just you just dove right in and after you got your ph yeah i got kind of both i have some no-till stuff I put in, and then and some I did till up and planted that way too. Um, you know, that's another question for Don. You know, there's starting to be more and more on, you know, different food plot equipment, no-till equipment versus, you know, tillage equipment, more conventional. Um, what are uh, what do you see as some of the advantages and disadvantages of both of those? Well, the uh, th- there is a new... Uh, trend, if you will, of uh, no-till, um, you know, the using the cramp rollers and such, planting a cover crop, and I think everything has its place. There's no doubt about that. Um, what I tell people is to look at what the farmers in your area are doing, because they're on top of, of uh, the latest in uh, anything to do with growing crops, and, and that's basically what you're doing as a food potter, is you're growing a crop just in a smaller plot. Um you know, the advantage of no-till is that you, there's less erosion. Um, the, it's supposedly healthier on the soil, you know, uh, you're, you're not disturbing it. Um, but your crop is, is usually not quite as good because when you plant that seed in, in worked soil, that soil is looser. And, and when that seed germinates, that root can grow a whole lot easier. Now, th- th- there's a reason that these farmers are out there with big equipment ripping up that soil. Uh, it uh, it produces a better crop or a higher yield, uh, but there's places where you can't do that. So to make the best of those situations, that's where the no-till comes in and and cover crops and things like that. So everything's got its place. You just uh, you know the biggest thing for a new food plotter is uh, when we're giving advice to a new food plotter is one of the questions we ask is what equipment do you have to work with. I mean, there's no sense in telling a guy, giving a guy advice when he doesn't have the equipment needed to, to follow that advice. 
So, I mean, that that's generally where we start. So one of my next questions kind of going from there. So how do you, I mean, you guys have so many different blends. Um, you know, how do you suggest people break that up, you know, between your clovers and your, you know, your deadly dozen or your soybeans or some of your bedding cover? Um, how, what kind of breakup do you guys suggest to keep deer round year round? Well, again, every customer is different and they've got different goals. Uh, someone like myself is serious about not only harvesting deer, but what they, we want to grow the biggest bucks we possibly can. And, you know, that requires not just a simple food plot, but a complete food plot system. And a complete food plot system is very diverse. It's got the grains, and my favorite grain is soybeans. Um, it's got greens, and that greens can be broken down even further. Um, you got your legumes like alfalfa and clover. You got cereal grains like oats, wheat, rye. Um, and then you got your brassicas, uh, turnips, radish, sugar beets, things like that. Um, and I want all of that on my farm. I want the grains and then I want the diverse greens. Uh, what I found while hunting is that if the temperature is above normal for that time of year, the deer will really hit the greens hard. If it's below normal for that time of year, they'll hit the grains harder. Um, but, but it's diversity is, is really the key because, um, you, you know, no plant is going to, provide every nutrient in the right levels that an animal needs and animals be it wildlife or livestock have the unique ability to balance their own diets so you know we plant out a, a plot of soybeans and the deer just hammer it in the winter time when it gets really cold but that's not the only thing they're eating soybeans are really high in uh, protein and oil content so the deer comes out to the plot and eats that but he goes back and he balances his diet with browse that woody browse um and when it's all mixed together you know soybeans uh, by themselves they're going to be pushing 40 percent protein a deer doesn't need near 40 percent protein but he eats those that browse those sticks and leaves and whatever and uh it, it's really low in protein but by the time he gets done it's all balanced right where he needs it they i mean god just give them the ability to uh crave what they need and they're able to balance and that's where diversity comes in but then you've also got the food plotter who maybe he doesn't own property he's just uh, got permission and the, the landowners give him permission to put in a small plot and he doesn't have the ability or maybe even the desire to uh, you know feed deer year-round on his, on his hunting property or whatever and that's really where the deadly doesn't come in it's a blend of we came up with a few years ago, but uh, it's got 12 different plant species in the mix. And that deadly dozen is, is really good for a hunting plot because from the time it first germinates, clear through the entire hunting season, the rest of the winter, and into the next spring, there's going to be something in that mix of 12 different plant species that the deer are hitting on. Um, for example, you know, when it first comes up, uh, they're going to hit the, the oats really hard, the Austrian winter peas really hard the sugar beets really hard. Uh, but then as it turns colder, you know, the, as the weather changes, 
the sugar levels and the nitrate levels in the leaves, the nitrates make them bitter. So when the nitrate levels are high, they don't want to focus or deer don't want to eat that plant. But, you know, turnips, for example, when it gets some cold weather on them, the nitrate levels drop in the leaf and the sugar levels rise. And uh, that's what triggers the deer to start eating those different plants. Um, Deadly Dozen is probably my second favorite to food plot after soybeans. Um, if, if I could only plant two plots on my farm, it would be soybeans and deadly dozen, although I think uh, clover probably should be in that mix as well. So that's one of the things, too. Like, I planted quite a bit of your guys' soybeans this year. Um, and we get a lot of questions from customers on why real-world soybeans over an egg bean. Um, and if, I don't know if you could go through and explain that. Many, maybe testing you guys have done around that as well. Yeah, you know, that's a great question, and I'm glad you asked it. Uh, soybeans were actually the very first product that we ever developed. And it's besides the story that I told you about uh, the other food plot seed companies refusing to plant their stuff next to the competitor, I, I was at that time, I was planting soybeans um, on my farm, and my neighbor's a big farmer, and I'd just go to him every year and I'd get some soybeans. Probably, whatever he had left, you know, in his planter when he was done, he'd give me, you know, a bag or two of them. And that's what I planted in my plots. And what I found was that some years it worked great and other years it worked terrible because the soybean pods would shatter open and they would drop the seed out onto the ground into the mud and snow and whatever where the deer couldn't consume it. And I was sitting there one year and I'd planted these soybeans and, and it got to be winter time and I'm out there hunting by my plot and all the pods had shattered open and it, there just was not any grain left in the pods for the deer to consume. And I'm sitting there scratching my head because it didn't happen every year. And I'm thinking, I need to find a variety of soybeans that is shatter resistant. You know, they're, they're not going to shatter and drop that, that bean out. And, uh, we started testing for shatter resistance and over the years we probably tested about 300 varieties of soybeans to get the four that are in the current blend um a few years ago we and our our soybean testing has continued it started before we even real world was even in business and it continues this day we're planting new varieties of soybeans every year and looking at them that's where the gen 2 uh, soybean came in a few years ago we in our continual testing we found that there was some soybeans that the deer just absolutely preferred over the others there was no doubt about it because in a lot of our test plots you know in some years we might have 30 different soybeans in one field and we were planting them like in a checkerboard where there's a 30 foot square 30 foot by 30 foot square of this bean next to a 30 and they're all flagged and marked and the deer come out, you know, and all the deer in one or two squares. And mm. those squares got wiped out. And then they would move on to the next one. And so we started looking at why they preferred some over the others. And what we found was that the the oil content within the soybean seemed to make them more palatable and attractive to the deer. So we continued our, our shatter-resistant testing, but we also moved or expanded it to include um, oil content. So the Generation 2 soybean, what, what sets it apart from the Generation 1 or the original real-world soybean is that it's got a higher oil content while maintaining good shatter resistance. 
So what do you, what did you guys find in testing? I mean, obviously we're, you know, Minnesota, it gets cold pretty early. Like what kind of temperatures mm-hmm. did some of those egg beans start shattering out on you? Well, you know, there was some of them that actually shattered before it got cold. They would shatter in October. Okay. Just from drying out. Yep. And some of that is, is due to uh, weather conditions. You know, there was a couple of years ago where, and I live in an area that's heavy ag, and there's a few, I don't know, it was three or four years ago, the farmers were having a, an issue with bean shatter at that time. They was having to, you know, go out early in the morning and combine their, their soybean fields, uh, which is not typical. And because once it was getting dry, as soon as that combine hit that bean plant, before it had a chance to rake it in or whatever, that bean plant was shattering. And there was what was happening then after they would harvest their field, we'd get a rain, and that rain looked like they'd planted soybeans, a solid carpet of beans that growed up. And that was the beans that had missed because they had shattered it and hit the ground. Mm-hmm. So um, some of that shatter is due to climate conditions, but not all of it by far. Yeah, no, and I look at that too. I mean, a guy puts all that time into it, you know, um, yep. you know, there isn't a, in the end game scheme of things, there isn't a lot of difference in, in price of beans. I mean, you might save a little bit of money going with an egg bean, or you might be able to find some free ones here or there, but if they all fall on the ground, I mean, it's do not doing you a lot of good at all. Um, one of the other right. things that, you know, we run into up here is corn is for a lot of people, that's their go-to late season plot that they plant. Um, mm-hmm. and I guess, what would you say, you know, like for myself, I've, I, I planted some corn. Um, the corn for me is more, if my bean plots get wiped out that I have something yep. else to kind of hold them in and also access, you know, I use it around the borders a little bit around some of those bean plots, you know, easy to get to grow and to grow tall so I can get in and out. Um, but do you see that, you know, over the whole country where, where people, you know, turn to that or where they have better luck with soybeans than corn as like the deer prefer it well i i think it changes um i I think most of the time from my observations they like soybeans better corn has its place in fact we've tested corn for a number of years we we may be close to coming out with something but uh, for the most part until this year we have not found a corn that, that was any better than any other corn. Um, and, and then we stumbled on something in the off season. I've got corn grown on my place this year uh, for the first time in a long time. Um, you know, corn's got its place, but, but the thing about corn for most food plotters, it's a pretty tough crop to get a, to get a good harvest from. Um, it requires good seed spacing. Soybeans, you can go out there and broadcast soybeans and get a great crop corn needs good spacing um uh, otherwise so you need a planter and a lot of food potters just don't have that it also is a high fertility crop it needs a lot of nitrogen and that and it's expensive i mean if you put an acre of corn in you're going to spend about 500 bucks uh, mm-hmm. to do it right by the time you pay for the seed and all the nitrogen and fertilizer you're going to need it's going to cost you about 500 dollars an acre to do it right and a lot of guys, a lot of food plotters just don't have the equipment or the knowledge or the attention to detail to get a good corn crop. Now, they can, sure, they can grow corn and get a stalk, but that stalk's going to have an ear on it about the size of your thumb with two kernels. Mm-hmm. And that's basically a waste of plot space. 
Um, however, you know, with real world, we've got some of the, the most serious land managers probably in the country planting our, our, a lot of our seeds and they've been asking for corn for years and we just haven't been able to find one that that's enough different than anything else to really put our brand on it yet. But, but it is something we're, we're working on. I think something with like what Jake's referring to up here is I think a lot of what guys see is there's so much hunting pressure to where that's the only place they can maybe get away from people. So they see so many deer in cornfields, so they think yep. that's what they want. Well, and I think but traditionally, really just, too, you know, like even growing up on a farm, it was easy for us to leave an acre of corn. Uh, yep. Where, you know, I think that gets in people's, you know, and, and you know, maybe they didn't leave soybeans because soybeans yep. were the first thing to come yep. off. And, and you left, left your corn because it was probably a little more towards deer season yep. than you thought about leaving it. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I, I find a place for both myself, you know, and another thing with like the soybeans, I know you guys have two different blends. You have a Southern blend and a Northern blend. Um, how does that different in, uh, in length of germination time or in, uh, uh, not germination and, uh, maturity on it. And that, that's the only difference really. I mean, they're different varieties, but we, we tested for the Northerns the same way we did the, the regular gen twos. Um, so there'd be, there's four beans in each blend. And, and the reason for that is we want to hedge our bets because there could be a certain, you know, weather condition that come along that causes one bean in our blend to shatter. And if that happens, that's why we got four in there. We want to make sure that there's three others that did not shatter. And, uh, there's one bean in the blend, I'll tell you, that, that I prefer over the other three that's in there. But I don't want to put all my eggs in that basket and then have a certain condition come along one year and, and all those bean, all that variety happens to shatter. Uh, the others are very good, don't get me wrong. But there's one that just uh, stands out as far as the oil content that the deer prefer. Um, it's the same way with the northerns. Um, they're both... The dividing line we use between the northern and the and the, the regular blend is the Iowa Minnesota border. If you just take that Iowa Minnesota border and you just draw it straight across the country, that's kind of the dividing line between our um, northern blend and our regular gym twos. So Don and and Jason, Kyle, Jake, something that we don't talk about often in food plots, especially around this area is acreage right so let's say you planted an acre some of you guys already have food plots in uh this is the third week of june as we're going to it um when you're listening to this podcast and there's what are you planning now because overgrazing is something that can ruin a food plot you go uh arbo season opens up here september 15th um and then you know iowa's october 1st and south dakota september 1st North Dakota, so on and so forth for landowners. Is there a process where you're planting food for now and then you come back in, let's say August 15th or right there and plant something else? Or are you strictly taking a food plot and with your products from start to finish now to July 4th, whenever you get it planted and that's going to carry out throughout the year? Well, I've got all my spring plots uh, already planted, uh, you know, I'm a little farther south than you guys. So typically what I do in uh, 
the plots that I'm going to be planting deadly dozen later in the summer, uh, I want to plant them in my area about the 1st of September. You guys are probably at least two weeks ahead of that. You probably want to get yours in in early August. Yeah, I figured it uh, out last night by your I-70 line. We're about 600 miles north of that. So, Yeah, you July. might even be in July. Then. Yeah, yeah, it's usually yeah. I try to go that last weekend in July right in there to make sure I get – Dependent on moisture and how early frost comes. So you guys don't have deadly dozen in right now. No, no have, not yet. What do, what do you guys have in now? And then what are you coming in July and planning? For me, I have basically in the ground right now. All I have is a clover trickery mix, and then today I'm going to go out and plant the wild bird blend around some of those plots. Okay. And then kill weeds for where my deadly dozen's going to go in late July. I got you. And your your corn or your soybeans, that's like a 90, 95, 101 day. So that's that's planted, and that's what it's going to be. Yeah, 85. The, I 85? Have that, yeah. Okay. And then you're coming back in, like up here in July. And then, Don, you said 1st of September is when you're bringing in your, for your kill plots or your deadly dozen? Right. And, and what I'll do is I'll, I'll plant soybeans in all my plots in the spring. And then... Uh, the the smaller plots usually get some pretty heavy browse pressure uh, throughout the summer, and a lot of times I'll plant those smaller plots two or three times because the, the deer just wipe the beans out as soon as they come up, uh, which is fine. I I want those deer relating to that plot as a food source, so I'll do that. But then I'll come in and whatever's left um, at the end of August, you know, I'll just disc it under and, and put my deadly dozen there. So like I've seen more and more people um, with like the deadly dozen mixes um just uh, seeding it right over their beans inside of it how what do you have to worry about with that do you have to worry about stealing moisture and nutrients to finish your beans off or is it pretty pretty safe thing to do if you want to especially if you're planting them in like a rose with a planter mm-hmm. well that, that double cropping is a good practice for a food plotter it allows you to get both greens and grains in the same plot uh, there's a couple of keys, though. Uh, Deadly Dozen is really not the best option for that. Uh, there's some of those seeds in that blend that just needs to be you know, buried in the soil to grow real well, like the uh, Austrian winter peas. However, overseeding, if you use oats or uh, real-world whitetail oats, it is good because you can throw oats out in the middle of the road and you get a rain on them, they're going to sprout. <laughs> to the back of your and truck. Then, uh, yeah. <laughs> The uh, plot topper is another good one. It's got the the bulb plants, the uh, radish, sugar beets, turnips. So you can just broadcast those into your beans. The, the real key, though, to getting a good uh, double crop is is how good your your bean stand is. If you, the better your bean stand, the worse your double crop is going to be. I mean, if you've got a real thick, tall, lush stand of beans that are are shading the ground then you're not going to get much out of your overseeding. However, if the, if the soybeans have been browsed pretty heavy, if you can look down and, and see the ground, um, and especially wait till those soybeans start to turn yellow before you do that see that overseeding. As soon as you start seeing a few yellow leaves, you know, get out there with your broadcast seeder, and that's the time to do it because, you know, once those soybean leaves start to turn yellow, it don't take long until they're on the ground. And uh, what happens is that soybean plant is dying. Then the other plants are coming on. So you're really not taking any nutrients away from the soybeans or affecting their ability to 
you know, finish out their life cycle because you're just, uh, as they're dying off, it's when these new plants are just starting. Yeah, that's good. That's good advice there. Um, one of the other things is, you know, especially I think are really unique with real world um, is a lot of your guys' cover that you have between your switchgrass, your bedding in a bag, um, the giant miscanthus plant, you know, which is really unique to you guys. Um, what, uh, I mean, you know, I, I think a lot of people don't think of providing cover to their no. deer. You know, they just think about the food aspect of it. What could you tell somebody that's maybe never thought about that, that would, that would make that put them in or put it in their mind, you know, how they can hold some of those deer maybe on their ground a little bit more. Well, I, I don't know if you guys are aware, but I have a consulting business where I travel around and uh, meet with landowners and <clears throat> put together plans for their properties. And one of the first things I tell every client when I show up to their, their property is if you want to kill big bucks consistently, you absolutely have got to hunt them on the properties where they spend their daylight hours where they bed. If you think about it in the course of an entire hunting season, how many daylight hours is a mature buck going to be standing in a food plot? I mean, you could probably count on one hand total hours that buck is going to be in a food plot in daylight during the entire season. His daylight hours are spent in bedding cover. And, and I'm a guy that has a food plot seed company. You know, I'm selling food plot seed and I'm telling you, that the bedding cover is way more important if you want to kill mature bucks. And, and just like with a, with your food plots, and, you know, I, I advise diversity uh, with the bedding cover as well. And, you know, wooded cover is great, but so are the tall native grasses. And what I've noticed on my farm, I've got, it's almost split evenly with wooded cover and, and the taller grasses. And what I've noticed, is that certain individual bucks seem to prefer the grasses and other individual bucks seem to prefer the wooded cover. Uh, you guys probably familiar with a buck I shot called Smokey a few years ago in 2017. And uh, the video was out there. And, you know, he, he he's coming out of the bedding grass. Um, most of the footage you're going to see of Smokey, he's in those bedding grasses. And he's just one of those individual bucks that likes those bedding grasses. So, let's say you're a land manager in an area um, and, and nobody else in your area has these tall grasses and along comes a buck that he likes the grasses. Well, guess what? He's going to be betting on your place because nobody else has got it. So it just helps diversify the bedding cover and set your property apart from your neighbors. So it's definitely a part of the puzzle when it comes to managing a property. What do you find like how big of an area does do you recommend somebody plants to try to keep some deer in it? I mean, you know, if it's an acre, is that enough? Is it five? Is it 10 acres? Well, personally, I would not plant a, a plot of these grasses less than five acres. And, and the bigger, the better. If you had a 40 acre tract of it, oh my, you'd have a mature buck in there every season. Um, I've got about 35 acres of it on my place and I wish I had 40 more. But uh, you definitely want to have at least five acres. And the reason for that is, you know, a buck beds in, in a, a field of these tall grasses, and he's doing so to stay secure. Um, he feels safe there. Well, danger is right at the edge of that field to him. That, that, that edge of that field represents danger. So in a small plot, he could be in the very center of that, and he's still not very far from the edge. 
So the bigger the patch, the farther he can get from the edge and the safer he feels. Not a lot of these native grasses, they say to like cut or burn off after five to seven years or whatever. Um, would mm-hmm. you, you typically do that or do you let them grow up a little more? Cause I know like my grandpa, he always, we have like about 40 acres of native grass on his land and he, uh, he cuts it every five years or whatever. And I kind of feel like if we let it go and get brushy, it'd get better. Is that not true? Well, you need to think of these grasses the same way you do grass in your yard. They need to be maintained. If you didn't mow your yard, it would turn into a weed patch first and then tree seedlings and, and briars and such would start growing and eventually it would become a woods. And it's the same way with these grasses. If you don't maintain them, the weeds are going to take over. Then you're going to have tree seedlings growing and eventually it's going to become a woods. The best thing you can do to maintain those grasses is burn them. And I, I'm talking burn them every two to three years. Uh, you want to do it in the early spring and, and the fire does three things really first of all it burns up the weed and the weed seeds that are there and uh, it also burns up any tree seedlings um when that that fire gets hot with those grasses and if that tree seedling is still small it'll burn it and kill it don't let it get too much size on it and uh, probably the most important thing it does is it really stimulates those grasses Um, the year that they burn is the year that they're going to be the tallest and thickest and then the next year, there will be just a little bit less, and then the following a little bit less. That's why I burn mine every other year, every three years the most. And, in fact, I would not even plant a native grass field if I could not burn it. We get that question all the time at Real World. You know, somebody calls in and says, uh, you know, I'm, I want to plant this grass, but I really can't burn it. And I tell them, yeah, if I couldn't burn it, I wouldn't plant it. I'd do something else. Yeah, and it definitely makes a, like that, before we planted that, it was probably about five or six years ago we planted it, and the hunting out there was good, but not that good, and ever since we planted it, it, it got a lot better, there's no doubt about it. Oh, the deer like it for sure, absolutely. Yeah, and I think I think for a lot of people, um, you know, the burn in it is intimidating mm-hmm. to them, you know, they're worried it about it for me. getting away <laughs> or worried, you know, it's something that uh, we're not real comfortable with, so I think that... Uh, you know, I don't know, what do, you, what do you say to that? Or, I mean, is there tips or pointers or things you look for? Time uh, there is. Uh, you know, I'm kind of a little bit of a rebel. I do what I want. And, you <laughs> know, I get these guys from New York telling me that they can't burn because their county don't allow burning. And, like, you know, good grief. And who owns the ground? <laughs> Go out and do what you want. But that's just my approach. But anyway, <laughs> to get back on track here and, and – what I like to do on my property, though, is I'll plant a fire break around the edge of the field in clover. And that clover not only serves as a fire break, but it serves as a food source. So that when the deer bed in there and they step out, the first thing they do is they step out into that clover into a good food source. But, you know, that clover, when you want to burn, is early in the spring. Uh, around here, typically March, you guys might be a little later. Um but that clover is the first thing that greens up in the spring. So when I'm burning, I got a great lush green stand of clover around the edge of my, my plot. I mean, I need to, I, I always watch the wind. I never do it when the wind's from the wrong direction. And I always, uh, I'm on good terms with the local volunteer fire chief. So I text <laughs> him, you know, and I say, Hey, I'm getting ready to burn my, my grass again. And, um, you know, he thanks me for, for texting him at one time years ago. I did not do that. And, I had the fire department show up because 
the neighbors thought the whole farm was on fire, but uh, <laughs> I started alerting them though. But that fire break, that clover fire break, about 15 feet wide around the edge, and you could see it in the Smokey video uh, for the hunt for Smokey. You can see him step out of that clover or out of that that bedding grass right into the clover fire break, and that helps you keep things under control. Yeah, that's a good tip for sure. Um, so now one of the other things is you know I know you guys have the switchgrass blend, which you know. A lot of people, you're starting to see more and more of that switchgrass. Um, and then also you have the bedding in the bag, I guess. What what makes your guys' stuff unique? Do you guys do the same kind of testing processes with those bedding covers that you do with your food plot seeds, or how does that vary? Yep, we absolutely did. Uh, we went out and, like, the bedding in a bag contains three species of grasses, uh, big blue stem, Indian grass, and switchgrass. So we searched high and low, and every single variety within those species that we could get our hands on, we got them and tested them side by side. Um, there's there's probably you know twelve, somewhere between ten and twenty varieties of each of those three species, and we basically planted them, let them stand through the winter uh, for a few years, and, and we've seen which variety of each species stood the best in, in the wind and snow in the winter. And uh, those are the ones we put in the blend. And to back up a little bit, uh, you know, before Real World, or actually when Real World started, I was a conservation contractor. I planted native grasses on thousands of acres across the the, uh, Midwest. I also uh, was a tree planting contractor for conservation projects. I've literally planted millions of trees across the Midwest. Um, and, And that's you know, my experience with that, I, I seen that some of my plantings, uh, in the wintertime, they would fall down flat to the ground where you could, they'd be, you'd be hard pressed to hide a rabbit and others stood really well. And then I started digging into the specific varieties and, and then test them and use that knowledge to build the, the bedding in the bag and switch grasses the same way that the switch grass that we sell alone is the same as the switch grass that's within the bedding in a bag. Uh, it's really taken off. I know when we first brought it out, you know, a lot of the naysayers said it, it's nothing, nothing special. And, you know, they thought cave and rock is the best variety and this and that. And there's a, there's some pictures, uh, from my farm where I'm standing in a test plot of cave and rock and a test plot of the real world switchgrass. And there is a definite day mm-hmm. and night difference. But as people have tested it and seen, Hey, this really is taller and stands better than my cave and rock word is spread and now we can't hardly keep i mean we sold out last year in february um we've increased production this year there's a chance we could sell it we still got a little more in stock we're about the end of the planting season for it but we don't have much left on hand either and you know we're at the mercy of that crop each year so you know this fall if the switchgrass seed crop is not there then it's going to be limited in availability next year so we're trying to expand that production uh, with some custom growers out in the Plain States. But uh, if you don't think it's different than Cave and Rock, buy a bag of each and plant them side by side and you'll be a believer. So on like the native grasses and switch grasses and stuff, they're a little little bit more fussy to plant from what I've noticed. Um, do you, can you kind of dive into like the seed stratification and all those different things? Well, they are. I mean, they're going to require, these grasses will require more patience than anything you've ever grown. Oh, that's what I noticed. And I can't tell you how many customers have called over the years, and they swear nothing's growing, nothing's growing. 
this ain't nothing but a weed match, blah, blah, blah. And I try to do my best to talk them into giving it a year, give it another year. Don't do anything because they're wanting to tear it up and plant something else. And then I'll run into these people later to trade show or something. And they'll come up and say, man, I'm glad you talked me into not plowing that under because I got a fantastic stand. I thought I had nothing but a weed patch. <laughs> yeah, no, I've been getting, what's uh, Go ahead. Sorry. What's happening is that those seeds are very, very slow to germinate. And those grasses will have a root system that is as deep as they are tall. So you got an eight foot grass. It's got an eight foot deep root system. And that seed is really slow to germinate anyway. And when it does germinate, it puts its initial growth in, more into the root than it does the top. By the time you got a just a little tiny one inch hair sticking out of the ground, that that seed will have six inches or more of root on it. And uh, so by the time it's coming out of the ground, you know if, if you plant it under ideal conditions, you're looking at at least thirty days to see anything, and probably forty five to see much at all. And uh, and during that same period of time, the weeds just have a an opportunity to get a real jump on things and out-compete it. It'll end up choking it out. So site prep is really key. Uh, cool season grasses will, if you've got any cool season grasses at all that comes on with your warm season grass planting, they will eventually take it over because what happens is each spring, those are the first ones to come out of dormancy and take off and grow one, and they get just a little bit better uh, head start and foothold each year and they just slowly dominate and choke out the warm season grasses. So you need to start with a well-prepared seed bed where all the cool season grasses have been totally killed off. Um, you need to use uh, residual herbicides to cut back on that, that weed competition to start with. Uh, you want different herbicides for switchgrass and you do the bedding in a bag um, because it's just a, the different species are susceptible to, uh, different residual herbicides and then uh, when you start getting some vegetation growing you're going to have some weeds there's no such thing as a warm season grass planting that doesn't have any weeds in it whatsoever but uh, when you get some of that weed growth then you can come in over the top of it with a herbicide like 2,4-D and kill off those broadleafs and uh, not harm your grasses so site prep and weed control two huge keys to getting a good stand and patience you need a good dose of patience yeah, I uh, I planted ten acres this spring here, and uh, my neighbor was making fun of me yesterday, saying uh, yeah. that that stuff's really going to have to grow if it's going to get any height to it because it's just starting to emerge now. Um, yep, it'll be interesting to see how it uh, progresses through the through the year here. I have a question for you guys: Is uh, not all of our listeners are going to have adequate acreage, or they hunt specifically timber ridges? Let's talk a little bit about a micro food plot or kill plot, if you wanted to say, uh, inside turn. But we're, we're going to have some foliage that has taken over. Is there one, one that you would, I guess, uh, prescribe to somebody that can go in there? They're not, it's not going to be able to get in with equipment. Or if it is equipment, it's a small four-wheeler or, or a, you know, a ranger or something like that. that they, it's very limited on size. What would you prescribe for something like that? Or would you not? Well, there's a, bit, a term "throw and grow" that is out there in the food plot industry, and I don't believe in the throw and grow plots at all. Um, if you want to do a throw and grow, just buy some oats, and mm -hmm. uh, like I said, you can throw them out in the road, and they're going to grow. Um, for for micro plots, I like the deadly dozen, 
uh, even in a, a tough growing condition like you've described, there's, there's typically going to be some of those plants in that 12 species mix. At least some of those are going to grow. Um, it may not be the best conditions for some of them, and they may not grow, but something in that mix is probably going to grow there, which is another beauty of the, the deadly dozen blend. Uh, clover can be good, but uh, to have a really good clover stand, I, it needs to be maintained. It needs to be mowed, or the weeds are just going to slowly take it over too. So, I mean, that's a that's a pretty tough uh, situation to, to have a real good food plot. Yeah, back in like my younger days, that would be exactly what I would do though with the oats. They're super easy, so I'd just go in and you could seed them two weeks before bowl opener, and they'd probably come up and be pretty good. And it, right. they usually work, especially if you do them late enough. Yeah, and I think, too, that's a, you know, it's a good point. You don't have to give it, go into it big. I mean, put a plot in, put something small, and you can start. And it's kind of, it's fun. It gets excited, gets you engaged yep. in your property before, you know, just going in there. And you will attract a few more deer. And even if it's one or two more deer or, or I mean, a different, you know, you're putting a different asset into your, mm-hmm. your property, even if you only oh, got a quarter acre. Yep. Yeah. I know the first year I ever did a food plot, I planted like your barascas and stuff. Probably two months too early. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a common mistake for yeah. sure. It is. And then, uh, could you kind of explain maybe why that you need to wait until later on in the season to plant those, like the plot topper stuff, or you know, most of the stuff in the deadly dozen? Yeah, so each plant has a life cycle, and there's going to be a, a certain point within that life cycle where that plant is the most attractive, the most nutrient-dense um, for the deer. And you want to time that, you know, for the hunting season. Um, for in, instance, oats. You know, you, you don't want to go out and plant this time of the year because by the time hunting season goes around, those, those oats are going to be, yep. you know, two, two foot tall and putting a seed head on. And they just aren't palatable at that point. Oats are most palatable when they're first growing, you know, for the first six inches or so. And uh, that's, you, you want to time it for that. You know, corn, on the other hand, it's that grain that you want to produce for the deer. So you got to plant them early in the spring to have that grain there in the fall uh, when you want it, when the deer need it. Are you calculating that all off of frost date then, or average frost dates? Uh, typically, yes. So are you in that 45 to 60 day? Is, is was that what you would recommend for like those brassicas blends and those oats and or shorter, longer? Uh, no, that's just about perfect, actually. 45 to 60 days ahead of the first expected frost. If you were going to err, would you err to the shorter growing season for it, plant later than earlier? Well, that's a good question. Well, typically what I do is, you know, uh, we've got a general rule we try to follow. We look at Interstate 70. Interstate 70 cuts right across the Midwest. It goes, you know, through Columbus, Ohio, Indianapolis, St. Louis. It cuts right through the the Midwest. So if you're along Interstate 70, we say the ideal planting time is around September 1. For every 100 miles you go north, of Interstate 70, you want to move that planting date up a week. So if you're, um, say, two week or 200 miles north of 70, then you're going to want to plant about mid-August. If you're 400 miles, you're going to want to plant about the first of August. 
Yeah, and I know around here. And that's here, kind of a general rule we follow. Yeah, our average frost date's usually around middle of September. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, backs us up into that end of August, or I mean, end of July, early August time frame. Mm-hmm. So and typically what I do is I try to time it with the rain. So as we, we start approaching September 1, which is my ideal planting time, uh, I'm looking for a rain coming, and I'm trying to get it. If that rain's coming a, a week before, I'll go ahead and plant it a week early. Um, if I get to that point and, and there's not a rain in sight, I'll go ahead and plant it just so I don't miss a rain. But if I see an opportunity to hit a rain a week ahead of time, I definitely take advantage of it. All right, that's good stuff. So I was walking along the ATA show in January, and uh, I could see your guys' booth from about 400 yards away because there was <laughs> this grass hanging 12, 13 feet in the air, um, or, or plant, I should say, um, the giant miscanthus. What planet is that from? <laughs> uh, it's actually it's an Asian. It's a plant from Asia. However, the giant muscanthus that uh, we sell is a a sterile cross. It's a cross between two different muscanthus. There is a muscanthus that is uh, an invasive that you don't want to plant. Um, ours is not invasive. It does not produce seed at all. It's got to be propagated by planting a little piece of root, very similar to planting flower bulbs. You plant that little piece of root, and uh, it'll take root and, and grow us you know, a nice stalk of grass, but, uh, there's nothing better as far as screening. Yeah. And so how does that, I mean, in our kind of country where we have, Oh, you know, less of a growing season. Um, I did plant a little bit of that kind of just to test the water this year. How high can a guy expect that to be is, are we going to see shorter stands of that than someone in central Illinois or? Yeah, I would, I would guess you will. Um, I still think you ought to get 12 feet out of it pretty easy. I mean, I was, I checked some of mine out that's been established for six or seven years now yesterday and it's already seven feet tall. And I mean, here we are in June, I still got three months of growing on it. Um, but you know, the first year you're not going to see that. I mean, the first year, if you get five or six feet, you're probably going to be lucky and it won't be real thick, but, but each year it's going to get taller and thicker. In about three to four years, you're going to have a, a fantastic screen. It's, so that it's does, got to be at least twelve feet tall where you're at. So that stuff will spread out and and keep expanding and and getting thicker. Well, yes, but not to the extent that you think. Each little rhizome that you plant, it's going to expand out to a clump about maybe three feet across, and then it just stops there. Okay. What are you? What are you guys using that for? You say I heard the word screening. So I have a spot where I have a food plot, and so I, I planted this switchgrass, and then I planted a corn border around it, and then I have beans inside of it, and then I'm gonna have deadly dozen alongside of it too. And there was one spot on the road where you can kind of park at the end, and there's a high spot in there where you can see back into it, and I planted it just off of that, so that way you can't. No spectators. No spectators <laughs> looking in the plot, gotcha. you know. Um, but you can yep. use it for access into your stand. Um, I mean, a lot, anything that you'd want to give seclusion. Yeah. And I'm sure Don has a lot more ideas on that. or if more, if, Make the deer more comfortable in your and plot. That, and that's what I was going to ask. I was assuming, but I didn't want to be that guy. Um, as hunters become more educated, especially landowners uh, or lease, what have you, 
access is becoming a very, very big word. Um, mm-hmm. because you know, the last thing you want to do is spook all the deer off, you know, or in their bedding or what to you. And it's what's your guys as a company. It's not just the food plot, the destination plot, um, but betting and access, if you haven't picked that up in the last hour, is it's it's huge. Am I right? Yeah, exactly. And there's all kinds of other uses for miscanthus. Uh, I mean, we got we're selling it to people in town and don't want to look at their neighbors. They're planting down the inside <laughs> of their yard. Um, uh, a lot of hog farmers are planting it around their hog buildings. Uh, I don't know what they're trying to accomplish. They don't want people to see them or what, but, uh, then I, what I'm using it for is, is creating structure within my switchgrass fields. So this, this spring I planted a, uh, a new field of switchgrass on my farm and I, I've got my scampus down one side. It goes, this field goes right up to my property line and then there's neighbors have uh, open ag fields. So, I've got a strip of miscanthus down that property line. And then I went off of that strip and, and created like a giant T. So there's another line of it that goes right out into the middle of the, uh, the switchgrass. I also, last year I planted a giant X in the middle of a switchgrass patch. You know, I burned off the field in the spring. Then I sprayed this giant X out in the middle of that field. Uh, and then worked up that soil and that X and I planted the miscanthus out there. And what that does is create structure and, and bucks will relate to structure the same way fish will on a farm pond. Uh, no different than throwing a Christmas tree in a farm pond. And by nobody, creating that giant does X, that, no matter which way the wind is blowing, those deer can get on the downwind side, you know, in one of those pockets created by that X, there'll be four, you know, pockets in there. They can always get on the downwind side and use that miscanthus as a wind block and to kind of protect their back. Uh, you can also put a strip of it through your mis- Like say you got a giant switchgrass field and there's a single tree where you got your tree stand on the edge of that field. Well, what's going to cause those deer to come out right there at your tree? You when they can come out a thousand other places. Mm-hmm. If you find a strip of miscanthus from that tree right out into the heart of that field, those deer will follow that as they come in and out of that field. So there's a lot of different uses for that miscanthus and creating a structure and such within your other native grass field or that's your other I, native grass species. That's what I like about the real world stuff is just about when you thought you got bored and you did it all. Yeah. They got something else <laughs> and you can you can put something somewhere else or try to redo the game a little bit. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, that, that gives a whole new level to, to what you're doing on your place. And yeah. like, I mean, honestly, I'd never thought of that. And, uh, now the wheels are spinning, but, uh, it, it planting food plots and doing what we're talking about it, as a hunter and conservationist, it extends your season. It's given you, you know, more to do. Um, one thing that we haven't touched on and we should just a little bit where it is legal. And of course I encourage everybody to read your regulations is putting out mineral. Um, what's your, what's your idea on that? Is it a, a must um is it just for trail camera picks uh is it are you adding that much or do we get the mineral we need uh after doing our ph and, and the seeds that are in there what's your what's your uh 10 cents on on mineral well i'm glad you brought that up because real world did get into the deer nutrition into things a few years ago too and we have the maximizer mineral uh, in my home state of illinois i'm not allowed to, to use any supplemental feed or minerals uh, however, I also own a farm in Ohio where I can. 
Um, I wish I could in Illinois. I, I believe you can make a difference uh, over time in, in the size of your mature bucks through uh, proper nutrition. I mean, this this is starting a conversation that, that I might not shut up for the next three hours um, <laughs> because I actually owned a, a captive herd of, of research deer for about 25 years. I just got rid of them three years ago uh, where I did a lot of research uh, on the, particularly deer nutrition. And we'll uh... seven sets of twin buck fawns. Um, twins born to the same mother. And then I separated those at, at weaning. So I had two different pins with seven buck fawns in each pin. Each one had a twin brother in the opposite pin. I fed them. They, they got the very same food. Um, all they wanted to eat the one pin. However, I, uh, top dressed their food with mineral each day. So when I'd pour their food into the trough, I'd have a little can of uh, mineral and I'd sprinkle the top of it with mineral. I made sure they got all the mineral they would eat at the bottom of the feeder. There would uh, they'd pick out all the grain. There'd be mineral left, so they got all they wanted and left some. Um, this experiment went on for three years. I at each fall at the end of the antler growing season, we would tranquilize these bucks, captive bucks. You need to cut their antlers off, or they'll just end up killing each other. So we would tranquilize these bucks and cut their antlers off, but we would measure their racks when we did that, and. Uh, over the course uh, of this study, I, I was getting about 15% more antler growth using the mineral than without. Mm. And these, these were deer that were getting a good, nutritious diet. Um, so I, I had some ideas uh, what I thought you know the deer needed as far as mineral. Uh, then Real World got with a couple of nutritionists, um, Livestock nutritionist, also with Dr. Clifford Shipley at the University of Illinois. He's one of the uh, foremost um, elk and, and deer vets in the entire world. Um, he, he raises captive deer, mule deer, and whitetails and elk at his farm uh, by Champaign. And uh, I got input from all those guys. I did research on the internet uh, from you know some of the university studies that have been done, and that's how Max Pfizer. Uh, was developed, but it started actually in my captive deer pen in, in, in uh, on my farm. And so to answer, it's a long winded way of answering your question, but yes, I, I believe that through proper new or supplemental feeding, supplemental mineral, you can add inches to a mature buck. However, I need to, to back up just a little bit I, I don't think that you can just go out there like here we are in june i don't think you can go out there and just dump a, a pile of mineral on the ground even a good mineral like maximizer and this fall you're going to see bigger bucks it's it, it goes back to fetal programming there's been a lot of research done with mississippi state university did it with whitetails um but it, it's been done in the cattle industry as well where it's been proven that what an animal gets as a fetus in its mother um, sets it up for success later in life. And so, in other words, if you started a, a mineral program on your farm, the, the deer that you're really going to see the benefit are, are the deer that are going to be conceived this fall. If you started it today, you got the does on your farm up to the maximum 
nutritional plane that they could possibly be on. Every nutrient they can need, they're getting it to the ultimate level. The fawns that they conceive this fall during breeding season will be the fawns that five years down the road will be the ones that I think you can probably see about 15% increase in antler growth. That, that fetal programming is really important. Um, it's a really interesting subject. If you go to uh, the Mississippi State University website, uh, uh, Bronson Strickland, he was talking about it uh, on a podcast here a year or so ago. But uh, I first learned about it through the cattle industry. There was research done at Oregon State University where they took two herds of beef cattle, and each herd was thousands of head. Uh, the cows in both herds were given top nutrition, uh, and, and even and the one herd was even given some mineral, but the other herd was given, um, you know, extra mineral. Uh, and just trying to, to simplify this whole study here where it's easy to understand, um, the, the calves that were born to those cows that got the extra mineral, they were healthier throughout life. They had less health issues. Their average daily gain was better. Um, their feed conversion was better. In other words, the, the amount of feed it took to create a pound of gain on those calves was less. Uh, they made market quicker. There was just all kinds of advantages. And when we're talking this study was over thousands of head. And then uh, Dr. Bronson Strickland there at Mississippi State proved the same thing with deer. And I don't want to get into his study or I'll be another 10 minutes explaining it. But that fetal programming is very important. So your supplemental feeding program, yeah, I believe it, it works and it helps. But it's not an instant quick fix. It, it's a long-term deal, and you're not going to really see the true benefits for five years. And then that's a very good point, and the reason I brought it up is, you know, if you own private ground and you're going to establish it for years on out, where it is legal, I have to put that in there. Uh, you know, it's a great program to get on. And the, and the great thing about all this information, one, if you're like me, you're going to listen to this podcast probably four times because – we got very in-depth, but also you can come into our shops. Um, Jake and Jason and Kyle, the reason we have them on is they're probably the most knowledgeable, but all of our guys have the, the product knowledge, not to the extent of you, but also they can get a hold of you, and uh, you, you know your website is very, very user-friendly, uh, real-world wildlife products. Um, is there, you guys, and you also have your own podcast, uh, correct, Don? You're Chasing Giants podcast? Yeah, we just started Chasing Giants. Uh, uh, when did we start it? Uh, well, last fall. Right before hunting season, we started Chasing Giants. I've got a brand-new YouTube uh, channel as well that I just released last week. Um, so if you look for Higgins Outdoors um, on YouTube, I'll see some new videos there. I think there's about a half a dozen videos up now, but uh, we're going to be putting a new one up about every week. Uh, my own personal website, HigginsOutdoors.com. Uh, you can go there. Um, if it's got to do with deer, I've got my hand in it somehow. It's, it's what I live for. So, And like we say, we could talk for endless amount of time. Uh, it's something that we're all passionate about. But we surely appreciate you being on, Don. And, again, you can reach out to Mr. Higgins or you can reach out to any of us here at Archery Country in the three locations. we got an adequate amount of seed. Uh, it's been hit pretty hard, but we're getting in shipments uh, every other week and and we encourage you to come in get some more knowledge and we can steer you in the right direction but uh, i think is there anything last you guys want to 
want to conquer? No, I had, uh, it was informative and uh, I think gets people thinking about possibilities of what they can do. Right, and, and it's not too late. It's no, not too late not to plant all. food plots, uh, you know, preparation. Uh, like I say, the guys here, they kind of have an upper hand on their private ground and, and they have some stuff in. And like Don said, he's got a different growing season down there. But uh, it's definitely not too late. And uh, like no. we say right there after July 4th and depending on what's going on. But thanks again, Don. We appreciate everything. And well, we thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. And I'll be more than happy to, to come back on anytime. Yeah, I think maybe we should uh, maybe we should gather everybody up. Do a recap uh, yeah. later maybe in the right, fall. And- yeah, after a couple harvests have been taken. And we can share some of our pictures of, of the products that we have from real world and and like I say, it just extends your season. I think it can be an adequate um, plus to everybody's hunting area, no matter the size and, and everything we've done. But again, check out uh, Real World Wildlife products here at the shop or online. Also check out uh, Don Higgins' Chasing Giants podcast, his YouTube channel, our YouTube channel, Archery Country, and also our Facebook. We, uh, I'm going to step out on the boundaries here as far as what I can and can't do. But I think uh, we had a, we're given a giveaway, you know, for our first podcast. I think we should maybe throw in a little giveaway. We'll have some guys. We're gonna we're gonna have two questions off of this podcast, and they're gonna be detailed questions. You'll see them on Facebook, and then you answer those questions, and then we'll give away some great real world products to uh, to our chosen winners. But thanks again, everybody, for listening. On behalf of everybody in the house, my name is Wade, and we will see you down the road. Thank you for listening to Archery Country Podcast. 